It's good to be with you this morning. I'm Kurt Parker. If you have little ones through grade three and you'd like for them to be in junior church, they can be dismissed at this time. Have them follow the leaders out and the herd out and they'll be well taken care of. Just don't forget to pick them up at the end. That'd be super helpful for the nursery workers, okay? Just want to throw a little football stuff in there, of course, on this big football day. God's plan for a healthy church, a study through the books of First and Second Corinthians, highs and lows of ministry is where we are in chapter 6, and dealing with hardship as we go through this whole chapter. We've been able to see Paul from his heart tell us how he's dealt with hardship, perhaps uh, responses that weren't what he hoped they would be, all kinds of things, and then we get to this part of consistent admonition, part of the job of every person who's been redeemed, part of the job of reconciliation, part of the job of being an ambassador. And I'd like to read our passage for our study this morning and look at the part of the ministry of reconciliation that all believers have been given as an ambassador of God. And and the passage says that deal with this low of admonition, because that's what I call it. Whenever you have to do this, or if you have to admonish admonish someone, typically that's a low And that really starts at verse 11, but we're going to pick up in verse 17, which is where we left off last week. Look there, if you would, in your copy of God's Word, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17. Therefore, come out from among their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I'll welcome you, and I'll be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty, in the first verse of chapter 7. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit. And then this part, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Practice is important, isn't it? If you play an instrument, if you play a sport or have played a sport, you know that, whatever the endeavor may be, I think most would agree. We're aware that Plato wrote the first sentence of his famous Republic nine different ways before he was satisfied. Cicero practiced speaking before friends every day for 30 years to perfect his enunciation. Noah Webster labored 36 years writing his dictionary. He crossed the Atlantic twice to gather material. Milton rose at 4 a.m. every day in order to have enough hours for his paradise lost. Gibbon spent 26 years on his six volumes of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. Practice is important. Michael Jordan is noted for saying, quote, there are no shortcuts. I approach practices the same way I approached games. You can't turn it on and off like a faucet. I couldn't dog it during practice, and then when I needed that extra push late in the game, expect it to be there. Very few people, he said, get anywhere by taking shortcuts. Don Hudson, the Green Bay Packers great, played 11 seasons for them from 1935 to 1945. He had 488 career receptions, 7,991 receiving yards, and 99 touchdowns. He held almost every major receiving record at the time of his retirement, including career receptions, yards, and touchdowns. He was inducted as a charter member of both the College Football Hall of Fame for Bama and the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Hudson's number 14 was the first jersey retired by the Packers. Hudson was also the Packers kicker. He added 172 extra points on 183 attempts and seven field goals on 15 attempts for another league record of 823 points. 
as did almost all players in his day, Hudson played both offense and defense. And on defense, he played safety and intercepted 30 passes over the final six years of his career. This hard worker's most famous quote, for every pass I caught in a game, I caught a thousand in practice. Of course, you can't think about receivers without thinking about Jerry Rice. It was kind of fun watching him run on the sidelines during the 49ers game with Green Bay. This is the guy who is the career leader in most major statistical categories for wide receivers, including receptions, touchdown receptions, and receiving yards. He has scored more points than any other non-kicker in NFL history with 1,256. Rice was selected the Pro Bowl, Pro Bowl 13 times, named All-Pro 12 times in his 20 NFL seasons. He won three Super Bowls with the 49ers and an AFC championship with the Oakland Raiders. And up until just a few years ago, Rice held over 100 NFL records, the most of any player by a wide margin, not the least of which is his 22,895 receiving yards. He had a lot to say about practice. Here's a few of the examples. Quote, I used to help my father, a bricklayer, in the summer. I'd catch the bricks that were dropped. It made me strong catching those bricks. I wouldn't change anything about it. That's why I'm here where I am today, really. End quote. When he's questioned about his career success, he said, quote, I think the thing about that was I was always willing to work. I wasn't the fastest or the biggest player, but I was determined to be the best football player I could be on the football field, and I think I was able to accomplish that through practice and hard work, end quote. And as we looked at our text this morning, I think it's easy to see the connection between those statements and what we saw there at the end of verse 1 of chapter 7. The last admonition, and we'll look at it more later in our time together, but from chapter 7, verse 1, Paul admonishes the church to be about perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Perfecting epitaleo, it's the present active participle from epi or on or upon, and then teleo is to finish or fulfill or accomplish. So it's really to be the reality of the believer. The verb is a verbal adjective because it's, it's a participle. So if, if you're going to be someone who's actively working on holiness in order to be accomplished at it, then you're going to have to be doing these kinds of things on a regular basis. And I think you knew that, right? And I would propose to you, as we saw in the other examples, that much of that practice of perfecting holiness in the fear of God, actively working on holiness, which is really the literal way to look at it, is going to occur when no one sees. It's going to happen, much like the success in things that really don't matter that we saw and read earlier with, with Don Hudson and with Rice and, and Michael Jordan, where they catch a thousand passes in practice before they catch one in the game or they caught bricks for their father while they were growing up. And nobody knew that, see. But that made all the difference when they got out on the field. And with these things that matter for eternity, the issue is, is much the same, and it starts in the mind and with daily time in the Word, of course, and we encourage you that all the time. And, and the idea is that you have to make sure that you're going to win the spiritual battle of temptation and sin on the inside over the long haul. That's practicing holiness in the fear of God, see. And the people that you know who have blown it, the ones who have got to a certain point in their life and then just kind of decimated their testimony and did something uh, really that betrayed everything that they'd said they believed all along. Well, but I, I just got to tell you, these are people that haven't been practicing holiness in the fear of God in the private time. 
Because you're going to get to that point, like Michael Jordan said, you can't dog it in practice and expect it to be there at the point that you need it in the game. Because if you're not practicing holiness in the fear of God, you're going to get to that point where you really need to be strong in a temptation and you're not going to be. Because you've been somewhere where you shouldn't be in the mind. Because the battle's going on every day there. And that's where the practice is occurring. And this is where the perfecting of holiness is occurring. Now, Paul knew all about this battle and he explained it to us. But he never used to fight it. He thought he was holy, right? But really, he was just a former Pharisee who was a well-trained, highly skilled hypocrite. right? A master at hidden shame and accomplished fraud, see? Like many in the church today who don't take the time to practice holiness in the fear of God, but what they portray as they come in the building is that they've got it all together and they're walking in holiness, but what's really going on underneath is something entirely different. Paul knew how to make sure the outside looked great. And Jesus had some things to say about that to the Pharisees, like Paul, who were just this way. He said, you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you, too, outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly, he says, you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And what's on the outside isn't necessarily accomplishing the perfecting of holiness, see. So the opposite of being an accomplished fraud is perfecting holiness, is practicing doing those kinds of things that you need to do when nobody sees. See. It's doing the hard things and practicing the hard things, things of character and the stifling of self-talk and, and the vain imaginations that go on and the secret sins that are there in abundance, these types of things. Earlier in Matthew chapter 15, Jesus addresses those who try and look holy on the outside, and he says this, he says, You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah say about you or prophesy of you, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines and precepts of men. After Jesus called the crowd to him, he said to them, Hear and understand, it's not what enters the mouth that defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth that defiles the man. And what started this whole conversation was the habit of ritual washing of the hands before eating. So the disciples had gone into a field, they picked grain, they started to eat. The Pharisees had come and said, hey, you know, why do your, why do your disciples, uh, break the law and, and are contaminated? They're, uh, they're defiled. It was simply an oral tradition passed down and eventually written down in the mission of it. it. It was a fence around the law. It was supposed to keep the believer uncontaminated from the world. And they thought if they, if they, you know, didn't wash their hands, then they were sinful or they were defiled. So taking this on, Jesus kind of clarifies how contamination or defilement really occur. And in other words, if you want to be, if you want to perfect holiness, don't focus primarily on the outside. And so Jesus says this. He says, verse 12, he says, um, he says, then the disciples came to him and said to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement? In other words, you hurt their feelings. You assaulted the age-old way of being holy. See, there were, there were snowflakes back then too. Verse 13, but he answered and said, every plant which my heavenly father did not plant will be uprooted. Let them alone, their blind guides for the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into a pit. And Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. And Jesus said, are you still lacking understanding also? So now we get to the heart of the matter and Jesus is going to explain it to him. And it comes back uh, to our passage this morning. Do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? In other words, you don't wash your hands. It's not a big deal. Okay, you're going to eat your food, but that doesn't, that doesn't contaminate you. That doesn't defile you. 
But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts and murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, slanders. These are the things which defile the man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. So if you're going to, if you're going to perfect holiness, it's going to start where? It's going to start in the heart, right? It's like we saw a few months ago from 2 Corinthians 4.2. But we have renounced the hidden things because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And then renounce the things, apopomane, to reject, to put them aside or away, eris middle indicative. We have rejected and continue to reject. Let's see, Every time they come up, we renounce them. We're renouncing stuff. That's a life pattern. See, That's practicing holiness in the fear of God. More come up, we reject them. We put them away. We do it every time, and we're putting them away. What are we renouncing? Things hidden, crypta. It's the adjective. It wasn't clear why we're renouncing things hidden. We get the reason in the next three words. Why? Because of shame. And this is the perfecting of holiness. See, these are sinful things that are hidden. They're not knowable unless we reveal them. We don't want to reveal them, so we renounce them. See? Renounce hidden things, things that he calls hidden things because of shame. They're the things that are in the heart. We just saw just a minute ago as Jesus was talking to the disciples, right? They are the murders, the adulteries, the fornications, the thefts, the false witnesses, the slander, the self-talk, and all of that other stuff. See, perfecting holiness in the fear of God means you're getting on top of that, right? You're getting ahead of it. See, if you're going to perfect holiness, see, and you don't want to wreck your life, you don't want to be kind of the in the group that Jesus talked about, the Pharisees, who just look good on the outside, but inside are full of dead men's bones, who, who speak and try to worship me with their mouth, Jesus says, but their heart is far from me. See, So it's got a lot of ripples, doesn't it? It has to do with worship. It has to do with the way you, you run your life. It's going to have to do with what happens at the end. See, because here's the thing. Time and truth go hand in hand. Given enough time, the truth will come out. And that's what happens over time. See, when you see people who've wrecked their life, they weren't practicing holiness in the fear of God. And over time, that manifests itself. It's just how that works, beloved. And if you don't want to wreck your life, then reject those hidden things over the long haul, those things that turn up in the thought life. See, those things that Jesus just talked about, all those things that are in the heart, the self-talk and the slander and the gossip and, and all of that stuff. See, the vain imaginations and, and, and all of that, false witnesses and all of that. See? They have things to do with the battle of the law of the mind. Paul refers to it in Romans chapter 7, verse 23. It says, But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. And if you were with us, you remember us talking about that. So things that uh, defile the person, defile you and me, find their home in the members of our body. Let's see, And we'll get to this back to this very practical admonition in a little while, but the question really is, as we come through this last little section of our passage here, and really we're going to move into the new stuff, Lord willing, next week, the question is, are you determined to be the most faithful, holy, set-apart disciple you can be? And I think everyone would say yes today, See, especially considering we just came through a big worship set, and we prayed, and we gave, and we did all those things to draw you towards a position where you could be fed, I think you would say yes now. We're going to look at some very practical ways that that can be yes tomorrow and the rest of this week 
and the beginning of next weekend, when the patterns of the life come back to normal, and you're not thinking about worship songs, and, and for endless days we'll sing his praise, see? And you're back to the normal stuff. Perfecting holiness in the fear of God. I want that to be in your mind, see? Because here's the deal. It's really hard to read that Jerry Rice committed to be the best football player he could be, and he was willing to put the work in for something that really doesn't matter. And then to know that as believers, we would be content with wherever we happen to be in our spiritual walk, and we're not that concerned about perfecting holiness and the fear of God. That's really hard to, to reconcile, isn't it? That in the world you have people, and we're going to watch them today, who have perfected their craft because they put the hard work in when nobody saw in the gym and on the field, and they stayed late, and they came early, and they, and they practiced, and they were coached, and they did all the stuff, and they got to the point they could be at the peak of their career because they wanted to be good at something that has no eternal value what we find from the Lord, a very direct statement, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. And what does that mean? That means a practice of things that are holy when nobody sees, so that when it comes time for your testimony to be clear, or it's really put in the fire, it comes out like gold, see? So Paul begins a section of, of the lows of consistent admonition, verse 14. And he tells us this. So he's going to start here. He says, don't be bound together with unbelievers. And we looked at that. This is the first admonition that really kind of turns on everything else in this passage. And he moved through this section beginning in the most obvious of imperatives, don't be bound together with unbelievers, and he went all the way to the one we just read, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. And beloved, that's a long distance to travel. So if you're bound together with unbelievers and you don't recognize the difference and the hardship that that creates and why that's a problem, moving from there to perfecting holiness in the fear of God is going to be a long travel time for you, Okay. So he brought some waypoints in along the way so we could see where we should be and what we should be doing and why we should be doing it. And first of all, gave really five axioms as to why this imperative is just obvious. And the first one was, what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? That was our first principle about separating from unbelievers and not being bound together with them. And, and, and the first one was this, the schism is hostile. It doesn't admit any common ground. You shouldn't be doing it. If you're there, realize you got to get out and this is the reason. And then he said, the second axiom was, what fellowship has light with darkness? Principle number two, true fellowship with darkness is as impossible as it is undesirable. Don't be bound together with unbelievers. There's no fellowship with light and darkness. Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Don't be bound together with unbelievers. Why? The worlds of the believer and the non-believer are as starkly in disharmony as Jesus is. And we said Belial because it's a capital, is talking about Satan who's in charge of the worthlessness of the world. So there's no harmony there. And those lives and those worlds are starkly separate and in as disharmony as Jesus is with Satan. And then he said this, he said, what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? That was principle number four for us. There's no common goal. There's no common reward between those two worlds. So don't be in there. And then the last one was, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? And that was principle number five. And we read, we went back in the Old Testament, we read Ezekiel 10, and it tells us, the Shekinah glory of God departed from the temple because of idol worship. So people were far from him, see. There was no way to diminish the seriousness of that event, see. God has no agreement with false worship. And those principles are extremely serious, just obviously. If Paul makes this imperative and then he gives five principles why you should follow it, I think he's making the case this is a non-negotiable. 
And Paul wants to see the church move from the foolishness and the futility and the bad testimony of yoking with non-believers to the joy of practicing holiness. And so he goes through them, and then he comes to this next reminder, which springs off of the temple principle, and it's found in 2 Corinthians 6.16. And he says this, for we are what? We are the temple of the living God. And the intent couldn't be any more clear. When a believer is yoked together with an unbeliever, it's analogous to all of the sadness and, and God's opinion of the agreement between temp, the temple of God and idol worship. It's analogous back to Ezekiel chapter 10. It talks, it talks about all the sadness that was connected with people worshiping false things, uh, in the, in the, uh, in the temple. Because we saw in Romans chapter 1, the reason why this is the case is because the unredeemed that you're yoked together with in the world deliberately suppress the truth of God and his right to be worshiped and glorified. And, and, willingly worship the created thing. So joining together with unbelievers joins the temple of God, that's you, with idol worship, because that's what the world does, see. And it's just as simple and just as terrible as that sounds. And then in the last part of 2 Corinthians 6.16, just as God said, I will dwell with them, I will walk among them, I'll be their God and they shall be my people, to drive the point home in this last part, see. Paul pulls a promise to Israel as they are setting up the tabernacle, as a result of my presence in the tabernacle, he says, I will dwell in them, walk among them, I'll be their God, and they shall be my people. And in Exodus chapter 29, verse 44, as God is setting up the conduct of the priests and their function and the feast days and all the things that are, uh, are going to be around the temple, the offerings and all that, he says, he says this, I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. I will also consecrate Aaron and his sons to minister as priests before me. I will dwell among the sons of Israel. I'll be their God. They shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them and I am their Lord their God. So I will consecrate. See, I'll set it apart unto myself. I'm going to consecrate the set tent of meeting. I'm going to consecrate the altar. I'm going to consecrate the priest. He's made it holy unto his use. That's what that means. See, And it's just, just obvious then why Paul is bringing this comment forward. He brings this comment from the time of the temple into the present time so we have to say, well, why did Paul do that? Well, this is why. I will dwell in them and walk among them. They will be, I will be their God. They will be my people. He brings it forward and he says, that was the shadow and this is the reality. See, in the fullest sense, it's said to every follower of Jesus, why? You've been sanctified. That's the New Testament equivalent. You've been consecrated. You've been 1 Corinthians 6, 11, washed. You've been sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God. And so in the full sense, you were washed and set apart and made holy so that the Holy Spirit could make his home in your body and you personally are now the temple of the living God. So that's why Paul brings all these old commandments forward, all these old statements into the now so that you can see the reality of your current situation. Don't be bound together with unbelievers. Why? Because you are the temple of the living God and there's no fellowship between God and idols. See? Now let's look at the first part of 2 Corinthians 6.17. Would you do that? He says this. Therefore come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. So as you see the Apostle Paul bring this into the forefront, we understand God's just as serious about being separate from the world as he's always been. And that doesn't surprise us, does it? In Isaiah 52.11, we have really a sample of Paul's admonition. Paul doesn't exactly quote it word for word, but we understand where he's pulling it from. 
And it says this, he says, depart, depart. So he's talking to the, the, those who, of Israel who are in Babylon. And someday that captivity is going to come to an end. And he's going to tell them to depart. And that, we understand how that happened. But he says this, so the idea there, they're still in Babylon, but someday they'll be released from that captivity. And he says, depart, depart, go out from there, touch nothing unclean, go out of the midst of her, purify yourselves, you who carry the vessels of the Lord. And so it's this call to his people who live in the land of Babylon, who are told to build houses and live in them, and to work and bring about gain. But in all of that, not to be defiled by what's unclean, not to do what the people of the land do, not to violate what they know about God's requirements in the course of living, not to bring the habits of the people home to roost. And this is number six and the lows of consistent admonition. You've got to remind people, see, come out from among them, be separate. Remind those that you teach they are in this world but not of the world. Paul just brings that into the forefront. He goes, come out from among them. You're going to be separate. He's just, God's just as concerned about being separate from the world now as he was back then. It's no different. And just obviously, you can't communicate this effectively if you're not actively doing it yourself, teacher, minister. Second Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17, Therefore come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. Come out, exercomi, aorist active imperative, continually emerge from the patterns of the world. Sounds a lot like practicing holiness in the fear of God, doesn't it? Like maybe one of the steps. I think you're going to see that's exactly what it is. Continually emerge from the patterns of the world. Come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. This is a daily effort. You've already been called out. You are, First Peter 2.9 says, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who, mark this, beloved, has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So he called you out of darkness into light. Keep coming out. Keep coming out. It's a dark world, see? Continue what's happened at salvation, and this is recognizing where the patterns of the world have taken hold of you, see? An active engagement in your own sanctification as you walk with the power of the Holy Spirit, you are actively engaged and looking around you and saying, okay, I need to come out from their midst and be separate. What does that mean, see? It's in the imperative. Come out. And be separate. So this is a task that we're given to do. And then the next part says, be separate. Aphorizo, eris passive imperative. When Jesus was praying for his disciples in John 17, 15, he, he said this, I don't ask you, so he's talking to the Lord about the people who are around him, his disciples, Jesus is, he's on the, he's in the earth. He said, he's, he's asking this as prayer request. I don't ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. See? They're not going to come out of the world yet. You're not coming out of the world yet. You have to function here. You have to work here. You have to provide for your family. You have to love your family. You have to do the things in the world that you have to do. You have to go out and seek and save the lost. In the mix, see. They are not of the world, Jesus said. Even as I am not of the world, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And that was that number six. See, remind those that you teach that they're not. They're in this world, but they're not of this world. And this is the issue, see. You're not of the world. The idea of aphorizo is is a compound verb it literally is to mark off by boundaries or limits that's the that's the literal translation to mark off boundaries or limits see apo is from and horizo is to determine or mark out so from the world mark out those boundaries around your life where they need to be see and not like the pharisees who had the mishnah and they 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 need to wash their hands in order for, to be pure and jesus said that doesn't have anything to do with pure because see beloved legalism isn't spirituality 
Spirituality, spirituality. Okay? It's practicing holiness in the fear of God where no one sees. It's catching a thousand passes before you caught the first one in the game. See? So, come out, be separate. See? And again, this is in the imperative. As a minister, we're to admonish those under our care to be separate. Actively, here it is, mapping out the places where we can't go and the things that we can't do. Okay? Appropriate for those who are the temple of the living God, wouldn't you say? James put it this, puts it this way, James 1.27. He says, Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of, of our God and Father is this, to visit the orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. We understand those things, don't we? We do them here and make sure that we are taking care of those who are orphans, those who are widows. But what's the other part? To keep oneself unstained by the world. That's pure, pure religion. That's the basics, isn't it? That's catching a thousand passes before you catch one of the game. That's not dogging it in practice and thinking you're going to have it when you really need it. That's catching bricks for your dad over and over and over again so you knew how to catch stuff. And that word there, unstained by the world, that is the word without spots. And none of the things we're dealing with are just what people see. This next part, see, and do not touch what is unclean and I will welcome you. Don't touch haptomy, present middle imperative. That's to fasten oneself onto, adhere to, or cling to. And again, Paul is bringing this general teaching for the children of Israel as they're exiting Babylon, and he brings this general idea right into the church. And now before we pull our next admonition out of this passage, the Apostle Paul clarifies some things about the word unclean. And, and that's worth revisiting, I think, just briefly, because it's important to know what's unclean and what isn't, and, and what qualifies as unclean, see. And this passage is dealing with our freedom in Christ, and we've been through this before two different times, in Romans and in 1 Corinthians, so it'll be familiar to you, but I want to remind you of what this looks like, okay? And, and weaker and stronger believers, and without going to all of that again, you can go back and, and catch that if you want, it's all recorded, but I want to point out a few important things. In Romans chapter 14, and verse 5, there's some important things said here that can help us understand what it means to not touch that which is unclean. Again, it has to be more than, you know, James is saying, keep oneself unstained from the world. It has to do with being without spots. It can't just mean on the outside, see, because that's precisely Jesus' criticism of the Pharisees, that on the outside, you're all polished up and you look great. So it can't mean that, okay? So it's got to mean somewhere else. So let's look and see. Romans chapter 14, verse 5, one person regards one day above another, another person regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. So if, if it's going to be something that's, that's unclean to you, you're not going to touch it. You're fully convinced that this is bad for you. In order for you, and if you do it, this is going to lead you in the direction you don't need to go and you're not practicing holiness in the fear of God. So it puts you in positions. You're not mapping out these things that, where you shouldn't be, you see. You're, you're going places where it's going to cause you trouble. So the idea here is you've got to be convinced and you've got to be actively involved in what's going on in your life, okay, where nobody sees. So he observes the day, observes it for the Lord, and he who eats does so for the Lord and gives thanks to God, and he who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat, and he gives thanks to God. So there's, there's both sides of these things going on. We won't go into all of this because there's much background. You know this, and you can go in and look it up if you'd like later. For not one of us lives for himself and not one of us dies for himself. In other words, we're living in this body together and what you do affects somebody else, okay? 
And the idea, just so that you remember, the idea in, in the modern church, the strong believer is the one who does everything that they want to do because they're not worried about it. But we understand it's the opposite, actually, in the scripture. The strong believer is the one who refuses to do things that cause somebody else to stumble. See? And so we have this idea going on here. He, one does it, one doesn't do it. They both give thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself, not one of us dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. Now, for to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be both Lord, both of the dead and of the living. But you, why do you judge your brother, or why again do you regard your brother with contempt? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it's written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall give praise to God. So each one of us then will give account of himself to God. So there's this personal accountability to God for what you allow. What you allow in your life, the Lord will account you for, okay? You're responsible for mapping out these things that can cause you trouble, these things that would be unclean to you, and you don't touch them, see? And in, in, in many ways, it'll be subjective. It'll have a lot to do with your background. It'll have to, a lot to do with where you came from. In the Corinthian church, these people are out of idol worship. They've come out of idol worship, and many of them couldn't buy, abide, if you remember this. They couldn't abide somebody in the church going and buying meat that had gone through the whole idol process, right? It got offered in the front to the God. It came out the back. No overhead for the market owner, right? It got given for free to the God. Nobody touched it. Gods are nothing. You know, it's not defiled. It comes out the back. It's in the meat market. You go buy it. Hey, there's a great steak. It's half the price of the one in the other store. I'll go ahead and buy it, see? And some people who were out of idol worship were going, that, that was offered to an idol. You can't eat that. What Paul was saying is, no, you can't eat it because it's going to defile you. And to the strong brother, you shouldn't be eating it. Why? Because you're causing somebody else to stumble. And so you have an accountability that goes on there. Okay? And so that's the issue. But then it gets, verse 14 really gets to our word, if you will. He says this, Romans 14, 14. He says, I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. Why? Because all of it's been sanctified and you've been washed. And you've been, you've been justified. Okay? Nothing is unclean in itself, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. And I would say that nothing is unclean in itself that the Lord hasn't determined you're not to do. Okay? <laughs> if you're not supposed to do it, then it's wrong, whether you like it or not. Okay? So it's only talking about this specific idea in the context of, of what's offered to idols and whether somebody eats or doesn't eat, okay? No, nothing, any part of that, that whole conversation, none, nothing's unclean in itself, but him who thinks, catch this, him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is what? It's unclean. So don't touch what's unclean, I'll welcome you. So what is, what's unclean? Well, if you are mapping out your life and this is what's causing you to stumble, is that a problem? Yes. Yes, it is. Because you're not practicing holiness in the fear of God, are you? You're doing what you want to do, and you're not being careful about where you go, and now you're right back in the same mess you were in before. See? So the passage has to be, really, the overriding guide in our understanding of our passage this morning. It doesn't mean that you can do whatever you want to do, obviously. If the Lord has said not to do it, you don't do it. So when Paul, Paul says, you know, there's nothing unclean in and of self. He's not talking about things the Lord has said not to do. You're not to do those, regardless of how you feel about it, see? The passage just clarifies the new economy. The old economy had its list of things that were unclean, things that have to be avoided, 
See, not to touch certain meats and not to do certain things, not to touch a dead body, all that kind of stuff. Okay. It had things you had to avoid or you were unclean in the old economy, which was to teach them about this new economy and how easy it is to be defiled in the world. Okay. So we move into this new economy, see, and those things have passed. And Paul tells us what he's convinced of, right? I'm convinced in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. Those things that used to be unclean, uh, not, not washing your hands, you know, touching a dead body, those other th- that's not unclean anymore, okay? Eating pork, all that kind of stuff, that's all okay. Okay? But what he's saying is this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17, when he says this, do not touch what is unclean and I'll welcome you, then he has to be referring to what we just read. And so the underlying admonition here is number seven in our list. When you're teaching those who are under you, you teach them that when salvation comes, you make a clean break. Don't keep reaching for the things that cause you trouble. And you know what they are. Okay? You know that process that leads to you eventually not perfecting holiness in the fear of God, but living in sinfulness in your mind. See? Or maybe living in sinfulness in your actions. Where nobody sees. See? You don't want to be there. Why? Because you know how not to be there. You have the ability to discern that now by the Holy Spirit in your life. And you want to walk in such a way that you're not touching the unclean things, see? And that's what you're going to teach. When salvation comes, make a clean break. Don't keep reaching back for the old life, see, which leads you down the road of where you used to be. Come out from the old pattern, see? And those things that that qualify in, in Romans 14, 14 may be different for each believer. And I think that was the whole point of the passage, some say some days are good and others are bad and some days all days are like and some eat and some don't eat and, and you have to be fully convinced in your own mind. So there's this active involvement for you in practicing holiness and the fear of God. And what is it? It's not touching the unclean thing. It's coming out from among them and being separate. See? That's an active involvement. It's the Holy Spirit is there guiding you along to make sure you're doing these things where no one sees and you're rejecting all these wicked things that are in the mind and you're doing it all the time. See? so that you can grow in grace and knowledge of Jesus and more and more in a reprint of Him. Come out of the old patterns. Obviously, you're shunning overt sin. You are saying no where God says no, obviously. See, for the Corinthian church, it would, it would be no to nearly everything connected to idol worship. Why? Because that's where they came from. This, is, this church is a little island in the middle of idol worship and depravity. See? And all the things connected with idol worship, sexual immorality and gluttony and drunkenness and wickedness or coarse talk. See, they're all sinful. Don't go back there and do any of those things particularly, but you may have to avoid eating meat offered to idols because that just takes you back in the direction that you used to be. And you begin thinking about all the other things that used to happen. See, and that's not practicing holiness in the fear of God. You see how, where we're going here? And even if they're able to shun all of that, the sexual immorality, the gluttony, the drunkenness, the wicked coarse talk and all that, there may be still things connected to their former life that if they participated in them would attack their ability to worship and would derail their devotion. And that's precisely what Paul is talking about here. It's not legalism, because legalism is not spirituality. It's spirituality. It's understanding where you are and what you have to avoid in order to practice holiness in the fear of God. See? This is mature stuff. Okay? It's not come to the altar and be saved. This is well beyond that. This is walk in holiness. And walk in holiness more and more as you see the day approaching. See? So, 
You have to make a clean break with the things that lead to defilement. They're unclean for you. And the Corinthians had to make a clean break from the former life. And that meant for some, they couldn't even eat meat that had been offered to idols because that was unclean for them. And our example from Israel's day and their return from the land from captivity is the same call to everybody who believes. See, You're coming out of Babylon. Don't touch the stuff. Don't do the stuff they do. Don't act like they act. Don't let their, their patterns of life be your patterns of life. Be holy as I am holy. See, it's the same call all the way through. Old Testament, New Testament. Be holy for I am holy. And just as a reminder from, from what all these things can't mean, it doesn't mean that we don't reach out to unbelievers. We're mandated to go into the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And we're here on this planet in order that we might reach out to the lost and love them and bring them to Christ. And it doesn't mean that we are to divorce an un unconverted spouse, okay? It doesn't mean that we're to cut off and sever all connections and relationships with unbelievers. I just want to make sure that I haven't misconstrued any of that, okay? But we are a holy people. We are a sanctified people, and that means that we are set apart and we're separated and we live in a profane and a defiled culture. And we are to be lights in a dark world, see? And, and we're not to do anything that profanes the name of Christ or obscures that light in any way. And you have to be actively involved in that because the Holy Spirit will give you understanding when you understand what his requirements for you are. And beloved, this is nothing new, absolutely nothing new about this command. If you go all the way back, and I'd like to, if you would, turn to Leviticus chapter 20. Will you do that? Keep your finger here. Maybe a little bit of a break in what we're talking about, but I think you'll you'll enjoy this. And I'd like you to get into Leviticus anyway, because that's usually where everybody gets tripped up. January first, they started Genesis, and then they get into Exodus, probably somewhere around middle of February, and then they get to Leviticus, and they get to like the seventh chapter. It's like, oh my gosh, you know. But there's a lot of richness here, and I want to I want to bring this parallel into us. And this is Leviticus chapter 20. So I'll just tell you, if, if you're looking in your actual Bible and those pages are stuck together, it means you haven't been there, okay? Separate those pages, get to Leviticus chapter 20, verse 1, okay? Leviticus chapter 20, verse 1. I'm going to read, and I'll keep, you, I'll keep you posted where I am so you can stick with me. Listen to the language, okay? It, you'll find this theme of don't touch the unclean thing, and it's going to help us to have discernment. Listen to what he says. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Verse 2, You shall say to the sons of Israel, Any man from the sons of Israel, or from the aliens who are joining in Israel, who gives any of his offspring to Molech, shall surely be put to death. So in other words, you're offering your offspring, your children, to be sacrificed in fire to Molech. You're going to be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. Verse 3, I will also set my face against that man, and I'll cut him off from among his people because he has given some of his offspring to Molech. Now mark this. What was the problem? So as to defile my sanctuary and profane my holy name. What's, what was going on here? So when they offered the children, as horrible as that is, what did it, what did it defile? It defiled the sanctuary, the tabernacle of the temple, and profaned the holy name of God. It's all about the testimony of their walk with the Lord, right? And their testimony in the community. It had everything to do with that. As horrible as the sin was, it had everything to do with God's testimony about purity and holiness, okay? And where's the sanctuary now, beloved? Where's it now? In you, okay? It's in you. Just keep that in mind now, okay? That, that hasn't changed. We, we want to take care to not defile the sanctuary here, 
or they care not to follow sanctuary here. Okay? Verse 4. If the people of the land, however, should ever disregard that man when he gives any of his offspring to Molech, so as not to put him to death, then I myself will set my face against that man and against his family, and I will cut off from among the people both him and all those who play the harlot after him by playing the harlot after Molech. In other words, even if it becomes no big deal to do it, even if nobody cares, and it's just happening all over the place, and the, and the people of the land, God's people, are not saying anything, God hasn't changed his mind about it, okay? It's still wicked, and he says, I will set my face against him. All who play the harlot after him. So the Lord's mind hasn't changed at all about holiness, right? About being separate, about doing things he says not to do. And the passage goes on, but just one more thing for illustrative purposes. Verse 6. As for the person who turns to mediums and to spiritists to play the harlot after them, so telling of fortunes, consulting the dead, horoscopes, all of that kind of thing, somebody who does that, okay, uh, I will also set my face against that person and cut him off from among his people. So God says, even if you think it's no big deal, I still hate it. Why? Well, what's the bottom line? Get ready, you've heard it before. Here it is, verse 7, okay? You shall, what? What's it say in your copy of God's Word? Set apart or consecrate yourself, right? Therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. I'm the Lord your God. You shall keep my statutes and practice them. I'm the Lord who sanctifies you. Every Stay right there in Leviticus. Every believer, whether way back in Leviticus or on up to Paul or all the way to the church today, same responsibility, same call. What is it? Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. You're the temple now. Are you still supposed to be holy? Yes. Are you supposed to come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord? Yes. Are you not supposed to touch anything that's unclean? Yes. Are you responsible for marking out the boundaries around your life so you're not doing that? Yes. And there's some things that are very clear from the Lord. Don't do them. And are you supposed to do them? No. And he says, do some certain things. Are you supposed to do those? Yes. That's not your freedom to obey or disobey a direct command from the Lord. But in these other things, he just says, listen, in, in everything, just an overriding principle, what is it? You shall set yourself apart, therefore, and be holy, for I'm the Lord your God. See? Now look at verse 23, same chapter. Verse 23 starts at moreover. Moreover, you shall not follow the customs of the nations, which I will drive out before you. This is a very common, common theme, isn't it? Thread all the way through. He said the same thing when they're coming out of their captivity in Babylon. Don't take on their customs. Don't touch any of the things that they do and say. Don't be like them. Okay. But here, he's setting up the people in the land. He's making sure they understand what he expects. You shall not follow the customs of the nations which I will drive out before you, for they did all these things, and therefore I have abhorred them. Hence I have said, verse 24, to you, you are to possess their land, and I myself will give it to you to possess it. So there's blessing when you what? Obey. See? There's blessing when you obey. It's not just all negative, see? I'm giving you to possess it. A land flowing with milk and honey. So mark the statement. I am the Lord your God who has separated you from the peoples. Verse 25. You are therefore to make a distinction. That's the same idea of aphorizo. You're to mark off some boundaries. Make a distinction. See. Between the clean animal and the unclean. And between the unclean bird and the clean. See, he's given them some laws. And he wants to make sure they understand what they are. Be actively involved in what I've told you to do. And make sure you mark off boundaries that are within the boundaries I've given you. See. 
That's the idea. Marking off boundaries between the clean animal and the unclean, between the unclean bird and the clean. You shall not make yourselves detestable by animal or by bird or anything that creeps on the ground, which I have separated for you as unclean. So there's some things that you can't touch. See, that's the idea. Come out from among them. Don't touch the unclean thing. There are some things you can't touch. See. Thus you are to be holy to me, for I the Lord am holy, and I've set you apart from the peoples to be mine. Now go back, if you would, to our passage in 2 Corinthians 6. Again, this is what separation looks like. Now again, in the old economy, there were a whole bunch of things they couldn't touch or eat, and they weren't to participate in them. But in the new economy, those things are gone away. But there's still some laws the Lord has set up that we're supposed to follow, and those are non-negotiable. We don't do those things. But in general, there's just a marking off of a boundary, an aphorizo of for you to know what you can touch and what you shouldn't touch that will take you back to where you used to be. And the Lord says, don't do that. If you're going to be perfecting holiness in the fear of God, if you're going to be practicing holiness when no one sees, it's going to have to start in the mind, see? Putting to death the deeds of the flesh and marking out those things that are... Uh, reviling to the Lord, those things that are unknown to most people, but they're secret things and they're shameful, and you're dealing with them on a regular basis, see? Again, this is separation. This is true biblical separation. It's clear, okay? You can't just walk around life just kind of bumping into stuff, beloved, any more than you could make a professional team of any kind and not be good at what you do and have put the time in. You've got to know what it looks like to walk with the Lord, and this is what it looks like, see? But I think a lot of people in the Western church they just kind of walk along, they just kind of do whatever comes along, and they're not the least bit concerned that some things they allow in their life are going to take them back in the direction they were before. But you have to be actively involved in this, see? Separate from the world, see? And not yoking together with those who are unredeemed. That's true biblical separation. We're to be in it, but not of it. And when we do that, God says, always, look back at, 2 Corinthians 6, I will welcome you, verse 18, I'll be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. And I think the point here is, is principle number eight, the lows of admonition. When you have to say something to somebody, beloved, as you're teaching them, as you're a minister, remind those that they minister to that there's blessing when you obey. See, just like we saw just a minute ago, you're going to go into this land, and I'm going to give you this land. You obey me, you're going to have it. It's going to be a land flowing with milk and honey. We see in other parts, houses that are already built, vineyards that are already planted, they're going to be all yours. See, obey me, do what I say. And here we see, and Paul brings that forward into the now and says, and I'll welcome you. I'll be a father to you. You shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. And, and, and that's principle number eight. Don't forget, when you minister to somebody, tell them that there's blessing when they obey. It's, it's, it's both parts, see. Some of the hardest parts of being a minister to people is to walk, watch them walk in, in, in unrighteousness and make bad choices and realize not only have they disobeyed the Lord, they've denied the blessing he could have given them over that time. They don't have the blessing, they're under his chastening. So remind them, you know what, there's blessing when you obey. It's never just all negative. It never was in the Old Testament. It's not negative now. See, we don't want to forget the positive. And, and beloved, you can practice this with your children, okay? Don't forget to reward obedience. Don't forget to celebrate when you have an obedient son or you have an obedient daughter. Say yes when you can, if they're obedient. And reward those kinds of things, see? And we want our children to respond in obedience to us because they love the good times that always come when they do. That's just as good as also spanking them when they don't obey, okay? 
We, we, want to, we want to respond, and we want to respond to God in obedience because of the blessings that he always gives so liberally when we do. It's not all negative. It's not all, I fear the Lord and what he can do. It is there, okay, just like it is when you raise children. They should be concerned when they disobey. If all you do is just let the, that line of, of uh, action extend out and out, and I'm going to spank you if you don't, I'm going to spank you if you don't, and that line goes farther and farther, and then you just raise a little heathen. That's what you're doing. Because they know there's not going to be any consequences of any, of any, uh, of any big deal for them, see. Short action line, do what we say. When, when you do, when they do what you say, what is it? It's, it's blessing, see. Because the Lord's like that too. And He wants us to respond to Him because He blesses those who He loves and, and those who are obedient to Him. That's, there's both sides of that, see. And that's the choice we have. You know, if Hebrews chapter 12 verse 6, for those whom the Lord loves, He what? He disciplines. He scourges every son whom He receives. We should know this is true about the Lord. Your children should know that forced obedience by spanking will be the other choice. Okay? There, there's blessing when you obey, and there's forced obedience when they don't. And those are the two choices, see? Chastening, blessing. And when you become a Christian, you receive the authority to become a child of God, and God is your father, and you are his son or daughter, and, and you have received in such abundance all the riches of that relationship with God permanently, that is your relationship with him as a son or daughter of God. Uh, but any bond that defiles, anything that interrupts this wonderful communion with God, then the blessing is cut off. And although he's still dealing with you as a child, he'll correct your behavior. That's, that's what that looks like, see? Now, Second Corinthians 7, verse 1. We're going to finish up for today. We're back to where we started. Verse 1 says, Therefore, having these promises, beloved. Paul says, in light of what we've already seen, that's what he says, and therefore, in light of what we've seen, and then he draws the promises to the forefront because those are equal to the chastening, see? The Lord wants to bless when we have these promises, see? What have we seen? Well, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I'll be their God. They shall be my people. And I'll welcome you, and I'll be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. There are seven different promises, verses 16 through 18. And we broke them up, but I want you to see them all together. I'm going to dwell with them, and I'm going to walk with them. Didn't we just pray that? Aren't we looking forward to that day where we can forever sing the praises of the Lord? Isn't that the joy of all, rede all the redeemed? You're going to enter the goodness of the Lord forever. Never be plagued with the sins that reside in the flesh because the flesh is going to be made new. That's our joy. That's our longing, right? I will dwell in them they will, and walk among them. I'll be their God. They shall be my people. I will welcome you. I'll be like a father to you. And you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. That's the kind of fellowship every believer longs for. In light of those promises, we've looked at them already, so we won't go back over them, but, but the sense of Paul's statement is this. When we, when we understand those promises, beloved, how can we do less than act on what God has required us to do? That's the, uh, that's the appeal. We understand the promises. How can we do less than act on what God has required us to do? It's appeal. It's an appeal based on God's goodness. It's appeal based on God's mercy. See. And what does He want us to do? Well, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit. Cleanse ourselves. Catharizomen. That's where we get our word catharsis. Aorist, active, subjunctive. So it literally has to do with scrubbing of dirt and stains. And we know where we're not talking about scrubbing, right? Not talking about scrubbing just on the outside. That's where all the condemnation came from. 
for the Pharisees and Sadducees. They scrubbed up everything on the outside and everything looked perfect. But on the inside, a whole different story. Let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of the flesh. Catharizomen. The verb form tells us that we are to continue this cleaning. See? And the subjunctive mood makes the verb what? Conditional. Remember? So, the idea then, if precious promises appeal to you as they should, then what will you do? Continue this process of what? Cleaning. And how are the stains of the flesh, that's the flesh ruling you like a king, and you'll find that the sins of the flesh are members of your body ruling you like a king. That's what Romans chapter 6 talks about, remember? Don't let the members of your body rule you like a king. That can happen, right? You know that. So the stains of the flesh, that's ruling you like a king, and the stains of the spirit, because it says defilement of flesh and spirit, spirit, that's inside of you that's doubt and rebellion and selfishness and disobedience and ignorance of God's word and, and, and self-talk and slander and gossip and vain imaginations and all the things Jesus talked about the Pharisees had inside them, right? Fornications and all that. All that stuff, see? You'd be actively cleansing, continually cleansing. If the precious promises appeal to you as they should, then you'll be continuing in this process of cleansing. And how are they removed? First John 1, 9. If we, what, confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is a continuous process of what? Confession and repentance. I tell people this all the time. When you came to faith, you repented and confessed in you. And you started the process because that brought you into salvation. Your confession and your repentance brought you into salvation by faith and that Christ had provided for your sin. And you started a process that will be your process until you see Christ face to face. Because you don't have any problem in the Spirit now, do you? Because you're the new Adam. You were raised with Christ. Where is your problem? In the members of your body. And it still has appetite, and you're still going to have to deal with it as something that has appetite. It's where it finds a beachhead. Sin does. And so you're working that way all your life, see? A continuous process of confession and repentance. And that is our ninth low of consistent admonition. Be sure, as you teach those under your care, as you minister to those as an ambassador of Christ, as you talk to your children about what it looks like to walk in holiness, see? Continually be about the dis disciplines of confession and repentance. It is part of your life. You started the process. I like to call it the short sin list. When we take communion, it shouldn't be the first time you came and asked the Lord to reveal hidden sins in your life, see? It shouldn't be the first time that you're saying, okay, what, what am I doing that's displeasing to you? This is an active involvement every day. You're in the Word, see? And if you're in the Word every day, you're continually holding up the Holy Standard in front of you. You're rejoicing in all the promises God has given you, and you're confessing those things that you're, He said not to do that you did and, thing, and the things that He said to do that you haven't done, and, you, and that's an active involvement, see? This is what a response, disciplines of confession and repentance, that's what a response based on the graciousness of God looks like. See, when we understand those promises, beloved, how can we do less than to act on what God has required us to do? See, that's it. It's an appeal based on God's goodness. It's an appeal based on God's mercy. See, We see this kind of appeal often. 
in the Word of God. It is one of my favorite things. I could spend several messages just talking about all the places in the Word of God that have the same appeal, but I'm just going to give you two of my favorites just quickly for time. First one is in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. You'll see it now right away now that we're illustrated an appeal based on the goodness of God. Look at Romans 12, 1. Therefore, I urge you, brethren. Why? Why is he urging them? What is he calling them to remember? The mercies of God, right. To present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Paul says, by the mercies of God, I plead with you to respond in this way. See? What are the mercies of God? Well, everything Paul talked about in the first 11 chapters of Romans. All the gracious things that he provides to the sinner in salvation. He says, therefore, in light of all of the mercies of God, in light of the imputed righteousness that you've received, what? Present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. So it's an appeal based on the goodness of God. See, It's an appeal based on God extending to you things that you did not deserve, grace, so that you could be where you are. And in light of that, respond. See, Same idea Paul gave us earlier in our passage. Second one, second, my, my second favorite is 2 Peter 1, 3. I love this. Seeing that he, his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Wow. What is his divine power provided for us? Everything for what? Life and godliness, both. Through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and, and excellence. The more you know about the Lord, the more you're have everything you need for life and godliness. For Verse 4, For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now mark this a little bit. This is the part. Here it is. Now for this very reason also. What reason? Well, God has granted that you are a partaker of his divine nature. Because of this reason, what should we do? Applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. So here's God, who has been so merciful and so gracious that he has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness and gave us precious promises so that we could become partakers of eternal life. For this reason, start to live the life, he says, applying all diligence. Because you've received these things, it's an appeal based on God's mercy and his goodness, start living the life that he has called you to live, see? When you've received all these magnificent promises, how can you do less than respond in obedience, right? Because this is true, begin that your life begins to look like this. And beloved, doesn't moral excellence and knowledge and self-control and all self-control and perseverance, those are things that start where? Where nobody sees to the disciplines of spiritualness, aren't they? Spirituality. It's going on practicing holiness in the fear of God, isn't it? That's, that's what that looks like. See? 
Nobody knows what you're thinking about when you walk out of here. Nobody knows what you're, how you think when you're behind the wheel of your car, right? But you do, and you can begin to practice holiness in the fear of God where nobody sees, see? Those things, you're rejecting those things because of shame. You're actively involved in catching a thousand passes in practice so that you can catch the one in the game, right? We're at the last part of our passage, and it appears this perhaps should be the actual end of chapter 6, so we just end here perfecting holiness. Pharisees and scribes, you know, they, they scrubbed and they cleaned. What did they clean? Matthew 23, 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You clean. That's our word. That's our word. You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside are full of robbery and self-indulgence. Those are sins of the flesh and the spirit, right? You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup of the dish so that the outside may become clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which are on the outside appear beautiful, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too, outwardly, appear righteous to men, but inwardly you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So the response of cleansing based on the graciousness of God is to be concerned about the what? About the inside. See? Clean that and the outside will conform to that beauty. And then the last part of our passage, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. That's our last law of admonition, number 10. As a minister, as an ambassador of God, it goes with the job that we are to admonish all those in our care to be actively working on holiness in order to be accomplished at it. See? Marking off the boundaries. You're not touching the unclean thing. You're coming out from among them and being separate. You're not yoked together with unbelievers. This is what practicing holiness in the fear of God looks like, see? And you have to do it too, minister. See? And I think you knew that, didn't you? So you said before, I would propose to you that much of that practice, perfecting holiness in the fear of God, actively working on holiness, literally, is going to occur where nobody sees much like the success of things that really don't matter that much. And that practice is practicing coming out and being separate. You're not of the world. You're in it, but you're not of it. And, and to stop reaching for things that cause you trouble. And you know what they are, see? Identify those bad patterns in your life caused by situations that you put yourself in. And stop going there, okay? As I counsel men, if they have thought life problems, I ask them where it is that they have the trouble. What time of day? Where are they when they have the trouble? And they'll say, and then I said, okay, that's the part you need to cut out. Access. You need to cut out the access. You need to stop with the non-accountability. Get some accountability in your life right then. Don't go downstairs when nobody's there. Don't be on the computer when nobody's around. Don't be on your phone somewhere privately. Listen, these are, these are life hacks, okay? This is how you don't touch the unclean thing. This is how you come out from among them and be separate. You have the ability to mark off your life. Otherwise, the Lord wouldn't say, you know, Aphrodite, mark out those boundaries so that you don't go there. See? That's perfecting holiness in the fear of God. That's what it looks like. See? Motivate yourself by the blessings that come when you obey. Think about that. Okay? You can think about the, the embarrassment and the, and the shame that's going to come when over time the truth comes out. And that can be a motivation to you too. 
And then you can think about, listen, there's a lot of blessing that comes along with obeying. Perfecting holiness in the fear of God produces blessing in our life, see? And, and to be about a daily discipline of confession and repentance. Keep that short sin list. Bring it before the Lord all the time. Ask the Lord to reveal your hidden and camouflaged faults, see? And get to the bottom of all that. That's what it looks like, perfecting holiness. It doesn't look like scrubbing the outside, okay? It looks like getting busy on the inside. And that's what it looks like where no one can see, see? When it's not obvious and it's not visible. Without fanfare, no compliments. Why? Because nobody saw you do that righteous thing in your private life. But that's where it really, really counts. When it's hard and you could get away with doing it, and as Michael Jordan said, dogging it in practice, but you're not going to be able to turn it on when you really need to, see? And ultimately, you do all of it, what? Ultimately, you do all of it, what? In the fear of? And fear is the Greek noun phobos. That's where we derive our word phobia. The word was understood originally in ancient times to describe the feeling caused by the intimidation that comes from enemies. In other words, you're afraid your enemy will surprise you, slay you. It's a genuine fear. Okay, so I say that there's no mitigation in the word Paul uses. It is the word for terror. But in its literal form, it's terrifying. But because through Christ, we are no longer God's what? Enemies. You're no longer God's enemy, right? Unredeemed, you are God's enemy. And that should terrify you. But when you're redeemed, you're no longer God's enemy through Christ. And so reverential fear, perhaps, is the best way to describe it. It's not a mere fear of his power and righteous retribution, but a wholesome dread of displeasing him, a fear which banishes the terror that shrinks from his presence. In other words, you're not terrified of God. You have a holy reverence and fear of him. Why? Because he's the boss, and you want to please him, and he's watching and he's in a position to deal with our sin any way he wishes to. And he will do it because we are his sons and his daughters. So when it comes right down to it, that's that foundation we land on. We practice holiness in the fear of God. Because he has the right to deal with us however he wants because we're his sons and daughters. But ultimately we do it so we can be the type of person, type of man, type of woman as a believer Lord wants us to be with the inside conforming to what he said to be holy. I'm just going to conclude our time together. Let's bow and be dismissed in prayer. Got a little bit over it. I'm sorry. Let's, uh, let's seek the Lord for a few minutes, if you would, with me. Lord, we thank you today for an opportunity to be in your word. To finish this section of this passage, that deals with the highs and lows of ministry, hardships. And Lord, these things, these admonitions, difficult things to say, but really the basics of teaching Christianity. Lord, thank you for Paul's example to us. Thank you that we can understand clearly what he says. And as he brings these commandments from the Old Testament forward into the now, and we understand that we are your temple now, we can clearly see what he says. Help us not to just bumble around, kind of going through the motions, not working hard, not practicing, thinking somehow everything's going to be okay. Help us actively deal with the things that displease you, Father. Help us to be actually aware of our own personal 
inability to manage some temptations in our life, some difficulties, and to avoid them. Help us not to touch them. So we're not heading back the opposite way of the direction you brought us. Perfecting holiness in the fear of God, we desire very much, Father, to be believers who year by year walk more closely with you, see as our first response is the, the fruit of the Spirit. Our desire to further your kingdom becomes foremost in our mind. To love as you've loved, to be self-sacrificing and to be humble, those kinds of things which will become part of our very fabric as we perfect holiness. We don't want those things to be exposed, and they're there in shame. And you've told us, confess your sins to me, and be faithful and just to forgive us, and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Because of Christ's work on the cross, we have a high priest who makes intercession for us, and the Holy Spirit prays in ways we don't even know. Lord, help us to seek you each day more than we did the day before. And we pray this all in the name of your Son, Jesus. And we thank you so much for our time together, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.